Welcome, welcome to this edition of the Provcast. My name is Brendan. And I'm Court. And we are your hosts for this COVID-19 edition of the Provcast. And we are joined here today by Ty Gaston. Howdy. Who actually is our resident MDiv. And if you don't know what MDiv stands for, it stands for Masters of Divinity. So before we get started, Ty, why don't you tell us what getting your Masters in Divinity is like? Well, it's uh, just a walk in the park. You know, a little, little blog article, submit it, you're good. Oh. You know, similar to the ways that you get licensed online to, you know, marry and bury people. It's just five minutes. <laughs> just kidding. It took me about four years. Uh, I started in 2015. Uh, I finished in 2019. I went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I did a little hybrid of both online and in person. Um, I will say... Obviously, you know, it's banned now, but uh, the in-person classes were so much better. I enjoyed them because you get to interact with an actual, uh, and most of the professors I had were pastors also. Hmm. So uh, it was really cool to see them interact with some of the things that that we all wonder about in a way that was shepherding. So. Well, I got to tell you, I'm I'm pretty close to my bachelor's in biblical biblical studies, and I think I've quit. I've tried to quit about three times in the last two weeks. So, I mean, all because of one class. Yeah, I'm taking Greek grammar right now and and it's just the worst. You need Alex Rollo. <laughs> you know, right. I have Alex Rollo and <laughs> and you know, he's been great tutor, so that's a little shout out, a little plug. Alex, if you want to start a small business. Yeah. Providence, if you need help with original languages, Alex is a good tutor. He's a good he is a very good teacher, but that doesn't change my mental capacity. So, uh, but here's to to graduation in the fall. It, Greek was some of my. There were some of my favorite classes. Not, that doesn't mean they were the easiest, yeah. but but they were definitely some of my favorite. At some point, if you do try to learn Greek, you guys need to ask Ty to sing the alphabet song that his <laughs> one of his teachers uh, put together. It is a pretty good uh, memorization tool, but it is it's a little silly. I showed it to Brendan like what was it 2016, 2017, something like that, and he still has not forgotten it. It's yeah, it's it's unforgettable. Anytime Ty sings, it's unforgettable. It's, yeah. it's true, and not just it's a mile marker in your life. It's basically you look back and say, "Oh, that was the last time I heard someone kick a bag of cats." <laughs> well, so before we talk, we we jump into the topic at hand today. Um, I did just want to open it up and, and ask how you guys were holding up during all this craziness, and um, just have a, a small little chat about your lives right now. I mean, I feel like we're pretty good i mean it's uh good as relative there's a lot of uncertainties a lot of things that are different not sure what's going to happen with our economy not sure what's going to happen with just uh generally the virus maybe the prayer obviously is that the the curve will be slowed or it will the curve will be much smaller than what it's looking like right now but i mean personally familiarly we're hanging out at the house jonas is doing his thing and uh we're trying our best to teach slash stay sane um things are good the only bummer for us is we are obviously on hold with our adoption of our daughter so that mm-hmm. the a few days ago we found out that they carried on they banned all travel so we're mm-hmm. just kind of waiting at this point for that ban to be lifted and then hopefully we'll get our court case and yeah so that would be a prayer we would ask anybody listening just to pray for that pray for our process because we've been in that for like three years hmm. yeah uh we're we're very similar. Um, not really much happening at our house. We just, we're getting a lot of projects done. That's for sure. Um, things that we felt like we never had time to do, now we do. And um, we have frequented Lowe's a lot here lately. But 
Um, I will say that like, even though I do wish that things were back as they used to be normal, uh, there's a part of me that's so grateful for the rest. Hmm. Um, my family's grateful for it. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's really great. And so just trying to man also manage the, yeah, the, the learning, the teaching of Caleb, uh, Megan has now become a homeschool mom of sorts, uh, which is great though, because the, the teachers at Timbers elementary, where he goes, uh, they have provided him with so many different avenues to learn with, uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of teachers do some awesome stuff. Yeah. Like, uh, Caleb does, uh, this, uh, online thing called prodigy. Um, he does this, uh, thing called I station and splash math. And, uh, they're, they're really good. Um, you know, if you're out there just as a, this is not related to the podcast at all. Uh, splash math is actually pretty cheap and, uh, you don't have to have a code from a teacher. You can do it yourself. So big shout out to the teachers though, for doing for yeah. sure heroes work as they, uh, hang out at their house and just, you know, get to feel a little bit like pastors uh, as they video, <laughs> you know, on their couches or whatever. That's, that's awesome though. Yeah. Speaking of, um, you know, we did our first fully online gathering this past Sunday and, uh, it seems like the church kind of broke the internet for a while. Not our church necessarily, but the church in general. Mm-hmm. I know that we premiered our video on Facebook, and all the churches across the world had similar issues with just being the, the servers and the bandwidth just being overloaded. So shout out to all you online churches right now who broke the internet. On yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And also, I uh, you know, I've actually lost a lot of weight during this quarantine, which has been hmm. countercultural. It's you know, <laughs> good. It seems it seems like everybody has been stocking up uh, on all the things, and uh, I've been on the carnivore diet for almost thirty days now. And it's important that you tell people it's not because you're like lacking food. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's like I've lost weight because yes. people are stocking up and we're starving at home. No, <laughs> this right. is an intentional effort, and uh, I'm about I'm just like point eight pounds under twenty pounds lost, and so I'm hoping the next time I see all you guys like fully in person that I'm a uh, relatively thin man not a thin man but relatively but thin re- man. relatively yeah. thinner thinner. thinner yeah but uh you know let's jump into the topic at hand today we are talking about uh genesis mysteries and we just really appreciate all the great feedback we've heard on the previous provcasts as we always say our hope with these is to bring supplemental material to you um, but i'll let court share a bit about um kind of the heart behind this this episode and what he's thinking so this episode was already planned, but obviously they've these all of the Propcast episodes have taken a little bit of a shift since we started this uh, quarantine-esque lifestyle. So one of the reasons we wanted to do it from the jump was obviously preaching Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in our Blueprint series. It leads to a lot of other questions you're not going to be able to cover in a sermon. And so there are just so many things in the book of Genesis at, at large and in particular, in the first three chapters of the book that we felt like, hey, why don't we talk about those in a supplemental, uh, uh, you know, another venue like the Provcast where we can kind of hash some of that stuff out. And one of the reasons we wanted to do that is because a lot of the questions we're going to be talking about, they don't have like, hey, we nailed it and we answered the question that, mm-hmm. you know, all these other theologians couldn't answer. And we mm-hmm. did it, you know, in the in the office at Providence on, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, on a, on a Monday. That's not, that's typically... That's just not going to happen. But it's 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 helpful to talk about. Uh, they are questions that people have. So there have been people who have uh, studied and scholars that have studied and found out some answers. And so we want to talk a little bit about it. And I think that can be really helpful that we gain from the discussion. Yeah. Uh, maybe some insight without having to uh, create aught between uh, a bunch of different opposing views. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and our hope right now is as you're quarantined, as you're stuck at home, that we can uh, do one of these each week and uh, hopefully just make your day a little bit better, help us learn a little bit more about the Word um, and kind of carry on with a little bit of the momentum that we had before all this hit. So I'll jump right into it, Genesis Mysteries. So we are going to dive in first to the story of creation. And I'm going to just pose um, a couple of questions here. Um, you know, I referred to Ty as our, our resident MDiv uh, earlier. and uh, He is sitting with a enormous the, uh, systematic theology book right now. So <laughs> he's got all the facts ready for us. I have none of the facts. Head, though. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so the first question is, I guess, and this is more of an opinion, um, and then we can kind of get into uh, where the science or where the facts back it up. But let's talk about the creation of days. So we're talking about mm-hmm. the seven days of creation, really the six days of creation, and the seventh day with the Sabbath rest. But are we talking literal days here, or are we talking fig- figurative days here? I mean, this is the this is the age-old argument. This is the one that people like to have. I remember in my uh, my Old Testament class, this is one of the ones I took in person, and this was something like the students in the class would not let the professor move on. This is what they they wanted to talk about. This they wanted to talk about gender roles, and they wanted to talk about dinosaurs. Those things were the top of their list. So this is something that let's and let's be clear to this day, both arguments for what we're about to make are good. Both arguments um, are held by many Christians, many believers, and we're not gonna we're not gonna figure out the answer today. Uh, if they if it hasn't been figured out now, it likely won't be because. And this is one thing that, like my professor always said, um, try not to put hardline truths in in the white spaces of the Bible. Hmm. Uh, so, like if the text doesn't say it, don't try to make the text say something. Yeah. Um, so that being said, uh, the different terms that we see, at least a. Uh, at least amongst Christians and believers, are the um, literal days. So young earth would mean that God created the earth and all that is in it in in six literal days, the seventh he rested. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the old earth would be that uh, the days are actually a figurative time. Uh, They they actually are millions of years. Uh, Court, you kind of alluded, you talked before we got on, you talked about the gap theory. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously framing the, the question a little bit would be, why why do why why is this even a discussion and the reason it's a discussion is because you have carbon dating and yeah. a lot of scientists who have gone into the geological studies and said hey the earth is however many million or billion years old yeah and that it seems to be a consensus that as you study the earth that it's it's that we have a very old earth according to scientists yeah. um now i will say especially if you're a if you're a young earth creationist or you don't believe that because you take the the first uh chapters of Genesis literally, then you're like, well, there are other geologists that disagree, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but by and large, you have a lot of people saying that the, the earth is old, so that has created the question. Right. And, and right. that's that's why we even talk about it, right? For, for a long time, this wasn't really a discussion, and there's a big discussion now. So yeah, the gap year, or the gap theory, is that you have Genesis 1 and 1, that, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. And then you have verse 2, which is, and there was a void, there was a void, right? And it yeah. was darkness was over the face of the deep the gap theory is genesis 1 and 1 is god creating everything yeah and then there's a millions of year gap between verses 1 and 2 mm. and then everything else that we find in the six days of creation in genesis is god ordering and and basically filling the earth 
that he's already created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. So the reason that we have an old earth and or at least like carbon dating is because there's this big gap of time between when God spoke things into existence and when he actually filled it. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, so the word day is interesting, uh, to me, be, just because it, it could mean so many different things. Uh, the word in Hebrew is yom. And, and so like it, there are times in the Bible where that means a very specific 24 hour day. Uh, there are other times where the exact same word is used, but it's meant to be a period of time. Like, uh, you know, in Genesis, we see in some ways that could be referring to a 24-hour day. But in Job, it says the day of the Lord's wrath, Job 20, I think 28, um, the day of the Lord's wrath. That's a clearly a period of time. And so some people have made the argument that, well, you know, they, they've said that because they say day and not days, that this clearly means a 24-hour day. But you could, But you could say... Um, well, I guess, you know, some people have said if God wanted it to be a period of time, he would have been very explicit about that. Uh, but you could say the opposite also, that if God wanted this to be a 24-hour day specific period of time, he would have been explicit there as well. It kind of plays into like uh, taking the biblical text literally and figuratively. Correct. Uh, how do you decide what's literal and figurative? I do think you have to say there are you know, portions of the Bible you we must take figuratively. Yep. And so if we're willing to make that step, well, then we have to ask ourselves, what is the author's intent? But part of that's like just uh, right. hermeneutics, right? It's like ha- right. how you read it, any text in the Bible Correct. is trying to figure out the author's intent. So the question is, what what is Moses really getting at? And what is figurative and what is literal? And I think that's what we're always doing, not just what we're doing with Genesis. It's what we, sh- we, what we ought to be doing as Christians all the time is asking ourselves, what did the author originally mean in this context when we read a passage of the Bible? Rather than just kind of, you know, what I learned when I first came to Christ was you just open up the Bible and you immediately apply that to yourself. Right. Yeah. And that's right. like really good. Maybe if you get like to the back, I don't know, fifth of the Bible when it's epistles and it's really tough if you just jump right into the middle and like, you know, read, read a text of the prophets or something that seems harsh. If you just immediately apply, you know, God calling you the whore or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. There's just so many different ways that you can go about this. And in some ways, there's really strong arguments. Like one of the strong arguments for a 24-hour day is every single time of creation prior to the seventh day, it's uh, it ends with, and there is morning and there is evening. Hmm. And so in some ways, the writer, the author is framing that day. Um, and some people would say, okay, well, it doesn't say that in the seventh day. It doesn't mention that at all. But and when it's when this topic of Sabbath, the the restful day, is brought up again in the Ten Commandments, uh, the people would have heard that as a twenty four hour day, and so it's kind of assumed, implied, that uh, this is one of the arguments as to why people believe these are six literal days, because of that. Yeah, you know, I I grew up in the church my whole life, and I think it was about fourth grade when I finally asked a question to my Sunday school teacher. Um, and I remember who those were at the time, just saying, well, what about the dinosaurs? You know, what about mm. uh, the, the, what does this mean? And um, as I went into middle school and as I, as I went into high school and uh, we had a solid youth ministry at the church I grew up in and, and, and a devoted pastor to the youth, um, I particularly remember in court, you just kind of mentioned earlier, that his advice to us, his counsel was um, to not try to spend so much time on the details, but the theme of Genesis, or at least Genesis 1, for us at the time, was that not necessarily it wasn't it wasn't written to 
explicitly explain how God created the world, but that God created the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first thing we needed to know before proceeding further into the, the depths of it. And then the same thing with Genesis or the revelation, excuse me, is that in the end, God wins. Yeah. Um, and that is our hope before we must establish that foundation before we dive further into the details. Yeah. Yeah. I think that obviously that, that should be our primary in, in the way in which we teach the Bible to our children all the way up into new believers Having said that, I do think there's some there's a merit and benefit to saying, okay, especially our, our children as they grow up, if they're going to go to university, that these are going to be questions that are mm-hmm. posed to them, and um, yeah. and we ought to do our best to to be able to equip them to say, hey, there are answers to some of these things, and and uh, that there's differing opinions, but that ultimately there are there are some answers. Like for instance, if you're if you're talking about the you can't talk about the literal and figurative days in the age of the earth without then getting into, like you said, dinosaurs, mm-hmm. right? which is a big question, which then inevitably leads to what about Noah's flood, which is why we titled this Genesis Mysteries. Right. Because you talk about creation, then it immediately starts going into, well, right. what about global floods in the Bible? Right. And I think that that's because of like, for young earth creationists, they, they use terms like flood geology. Right. Right. You know, which is like, uh, hey, if there's going to be a global massive flood on the scale that we read in the story of Noah, then maybe that would change the way in which we date, like carbon dating with our, you know, stones and things like that. Right. Yeah. Like the, the flood, the rush of the waters right. uh, mixed all the land up. And, and so what we actually see is not actually the whole story, at least from a carbon dating perspective. Right. And then you have, you know, obviously scientists that'll say like a global flood's impossible, hmm. uh, you know, with the, with the constitution of the way that continents are today, you know, that just wouldn't happen. So then you get people that have like the Pangea theory, right? Which right. I learned that like before I was ever a Christian in, in school, mm-hmm. they would talk about how, I think it was like third grade science or something that, hey, take the continents and see if you could fit them together to be one big piece of land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because that was a theory, right? It's like it was all one piece of land and then somehow it all broke apart over time. And so some people would say, well, the, the global flood happened because, hey, we're one big you know, piece of land in the Pangea. And yeah. then after that, you have the Tower of Babel where there's this massive earthquake and yeah. you have all the languages that spread across and that earthquake potentially could have, you know, created the different continents. Um, and there's a lot of thoughts, not, not just those. Then you have the old earth creationists that'll say, well, the reason that you have a global flood is the same interpretation that we get in Matthew one, I believe it is, or Luke chapter one, where it says a, a tax or a census went out across the whole world that everyone would be registered. Right. And obviously it wasn't a census of the whole world, it was the whole census of the Roman world, which if, which would have been a figure of speech, right? Right. And so what the old earth creationists would say is that it was a local flood, most likely in Mesopotamia at the time, and that the reason that the Bible can refer to it as a global flood is because the globe was every living thing. Right. And every living person. Right. And then that's what you know, people died off. But I mean, obviously these are, these are all the different questions that come up, especially as you, know, you start to send children into university and things like that. And people will scorn them. Right. You know, why would you believe something so silly? Right. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's tough. The, even the idea of a, of a local flood, it, it's sort of like, it doesn't, I wouldn't say rubs me the wrong way, but I think it makes, I think it adds an extra hoop you have to jump through Mm. just because God was clear when he said he would never do it again. And, And so like, if, I mean, Maybe, maybe that was true. Maybe God was, maybe the, if you had the Pangea method that, or theory that there was never going to be a time the lands were all together, the people were in, in one spot and God would flood and kill all the people. Uh, but 
if it's just a local flow, then what about Harvey is what you're saying? Right, exactly. Yeah, what Yeah. What about something like that? Because to somebody who's like in the middle of the city and they've never been outside, they would have been like, man, the whole world's flooded. Right. Um, but I think when God says, I'll never flood the world again, I think he means the world, uh, at least at least from, from me and my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that all of us, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, grew up in the public school system and what was taught was an old earth style creation. Obviously, there was no theistic creation model uh, when we grew up as far as in the public schools, unless you went to some kind of Christian school. But um, we, we talked about evolution uh, and things like that. And so it wasn't really for me, even until probably I knew about people that would they would believe in, in a six day creation or a young earth um, through Sunday school and church and things like that. But really high school and even college to where I actually came upon, um, you know, large groups of people that were dedicated to a six-day creation yeah, um, and just exploring the implications of that um, versus a, an old earth creation is, a very, is very interesting. And so I guess, you know, we all can have these different opinions. Um, and Ty, you talked about yours, and, and really I probably land. I don't even know if I do land. I think I'm just in the <laughs> air because, like I said, I grew up for 20 years probably thinking nothing about it, just an old earth creation, no big deal. And then as I approached like full-time ministry, you have people that are like, no, 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 six-day creation. What are you talking about? I'm like, well, yeah. I'm really okay with either. I think I have some some personal implications that I would need to wrestle through if I chose either one. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not unwilling to talk about it or even like study more. I just, you know, it's not something that I often wage war about inside my head. Yeah, I think there are like important pieces of the creation narrative that I don't think you can like leave in the open hand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, for instance, God being the creator of everything. Yes. Yep. That That's essential. Uh, that That's, that's the, like, that's headline. Like you were saying earlier, that's the headline of, of Genesis one is that God was self-existent prior to creation. If yep. he, he didn't, he's not contingent and he created everything right. out of nothing. So I think ex nihilo is really important that there's not, and you get that kind of theme running throughout the Bible. Like I was reading in Isaiah last night where God is prophesying to the children of Israel. He says, is there any other gods beside me? I see not one. Right. Like there's none other than me. And and God wants us to know that there's not like, you know, other gods that are creating other universes that are, you know, it's, he is the only true God. Yeah. Um, And then I think that we have to see Genesis as a reliable historical account of what he did. Yeah. Yeah. Whether that's figurative and literal in specific instances, I think are up to debate. Except, and I'll pitch this one back to you, Ty, except when it comes to Adam and Eve. Yeah. So maybe you can, like, give us some insight. Why is it important that we keep Adam and Eve as historical figures and not figurative, like, just kind of, um, you know, a lot of people will say, yeah, well, every every religion has an Adam and Eve of sorts. Right. It's like, why is it important that we believe, no, there's actually an Adam and an Eve and they're historical people? Yeah, I, I think it's important because I think it plays into... Um, and this, this in some ways plays into why theistic evolution is not actually a thing. Because, I mean, it is a thing and people believe it, and I, w- I want to respect those that do. But I think it, there's a theological implication uh, that is there that cannot, that cannot be ignored. And that's that when God created, and you see this in the account of Genesis, he created with purpose. And there's a tinge behind evolution, uh, macroevolution and theist- theistic evolution, which theistic evolution, long story short, would simply be that uh, God created things initially and then allowed them to to evolve as they will. Uh, but for for us, that has a randomness to it 
and God clearly created with purpose. And the reason why Adam and Eve are, it's important to keep them as historical figures is God created them um, as the beginning of mankind. And to remove that, I think, is to remove uh, the importance of the Imago Dei. Yeah, the Imago Dei, I think, leads to so many other discussions, which I think we're going to get into. The other thing I was thinking about in, in reading through, Grudem does a good job talking about this, and a, a number of other commentators do as well, but if if Adam is not a historical person, then we don't have our entire... Um, we haven't gotten into this, but we will, but like the doctrine of sin in the fall, right. meaning that what Romans said is that every human being that was born from the beginning because of Adam and Eve's fall are in Adam, like yeah. as our rep, as a representative head, yes. yeah. meaning that in Adam all die, in Adam all have are bearing the curse right. of sin, which is death. And, and that's really important. It's, it, it makes sense of even what we're dealing with with the coronavirus. It's like, yeah. why is the coronavirus? Well, we always, as Christians, we point back to sin. Right. And we say, well, we are in Adam, right. and therefore death is coming for us all. This is one way that it could come for us, but this is the effect of the fall. And then why, why would Christians say, well, why is that important? Well, it's really important because if, if we don't have a representative head in Adam, then we have no hope that Christ can be our new representative head when we put faith in him. Right. So if in Adam all die, Romans says, then in Christ all live. Right. Yeah. And if we take those away, we, we lose really the, cent- the central focal point of our faith. So I think it's essential that we don't say, with theistic evolution, like you said, Ty, it's like God sets things into motion, and then we became human beings from animals. Yeah. But that's not, like you said, the Imago Dei. That's yeah. not the Imago Dei, number one, which is that we were created in the image of God. But number two, it means that probably Adam and Eve are just these figurative like types of, I guess, Cro-Magnon man. Right, right. And therefore, we don't have a representative head. Yeah. That's problematic. So a clarifying question on theistic evolution, because, uh, you know, I want to tie this back into the old earth creation. Um, So when you say that, that, or I guess when both of you, I'm not saying that I don't, I'm just posing this question that theistic evolution isn't a thing as far as like the truth. Um, Are you differentiating that? Between so, if you take old Earth creation and you say that the Earth six days was were millions of years, yeah, are you are you discounting the the possibility that that things could have evolved, plants, animals, whatever, uh, into what they were at the time of creation of man, mm-hmm. or are you saying that everything was exactly the same from the moment it was created all the way through those million years, if you were taking an old Earth creation stance? Yeah, I mean, and some people have said uh, I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it's an accurate term. Some people have said microevolution, yeah, where you have like uh, plants um, adapt to their environment and they become different plants. Mm-hmm. Um, I think adaptation is probably a, a more accurate term there uh, because you're they're responding to their environment, and so I don't th- yeah I don't think that things have simply remained the same as they are because I don't think our world has remained the same. Yeah, and so it's why like you know if I were to move uh, to Africa, I mean. I mean, I'm very pale, but, but eventually can confirm, <laughs> right. Eventually I would get some kind of, uh, some kind of tan of sorts yeah. uh, because my body is adapting to its environment. And so I think, no, I, I do, theistic evolution would say that it's a, it's kind of a Christian's version of macro evolution, which is things began initially and they became different things, uh, migrated to different species. And, and there's just, there's not a, I think you can bend evidence to, for you to believe that, but they've never been able to recreate that study. Yep. They've never been able to turn a species to another species and observe it and 
it's it's merely a theory and theistic evolution falls there and and so i yeah and the theory is on the basis of like right that that happens over millions of years right which you know conveniently most people agree that we haven't human beings have not been around that long right so conveniently they say well of course that hasn't happened in our historical right you know existence because why well because it takes millions of years to do but the the genesis couple things number one the genesis account says that god created things after their own kind right so like beasts after their own kind that they would reproduce and yep and so i think that that's important secondarily i think it's important for us to say we are not saying that god didn't create like you mentioned whether it be animals or even human beings with the capability to evolve to their circumstances or right. to, to, to their habitat or to, of course, like that's uh, scientifically proven yeah. that, that species evolve, we evolve because we have an adaptability, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a designer, right? Yeah. That God had not designed us for that very purpose. Correct. And so like maybe something to consider is, Belief in evolution as a biological process is not the same as belief in evolution as a worldview. Right. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and that we can say, like, there is something to be said about a biological process of evolution. Yeah. That can be affirmed without having to say that we're going to jump on board with the worldview right. of evolution. And I think that's what makes me most concerned. Right. Is it feels like, um, well, like, for instance, I was reading an article from, from Tim Keller, and he was talking about Sam Harris. You guys, yeah, yeah. he's kind of like a, I don't the, know, how do I explain Sam face Harris? Face of atheism? Yeah, but he's very popular. Yeah. I mean, like like Joe Rogan popular, right? Like, yeah. lots of people listen to Sam Harris's podcast. He's kind of like the new face of atheism, like you right. said. Yeah. And it was, the, the, the Tim Keller interview was saying, or the article he wrote was that Sam Harris uh, heard about this guy, um, I think his last name was Collins or something, but he had been... Uh, chosen to sit on the chair of this, uh, you know, university, right? I think his yeah. name was Francis Collins, and he was he was going to be the head of this this university in some way. And Harris comes out and says, basically, I can't believe that we're going to put someone in this chair that has an understanding of human nature that you know doesn't rely upon neuroscience, psychology, cognitive science, behavioral economics, but instead like believes in and basically just shames him for having any kind of Christian thought, right? And, and Keller goes on to say, like, that, that part of the problem that we're dealing with as Christians is, is shame is a powerful motivator against anyone who has a thought yep. that might agree with, uh, right. like, a biblical narrative. And he calls it, like, plausibility structures. Yeah. Meaning it's completely implausible for you to even say that you disagree with evolution as a worldview now. Right. Which is, it's, like you mentioned earlier, that there's holes in it. Yeah. But if you if you talk to just regular everyday teachers or just it's like you're totally uh, dismissed. Yep. Like Sam Harris wants to do everything he can to dismiss you as an intellectual, right? If you disagree with him, exactly. And, and that's and that's and that's really a, a like a sign of the times, right? The sensationalism. The I'm not gonna I'm not gonna really be concerned with what's actually true. I'm gonna be concerned with what affirms how I feel. Yes. And, and so. In order to completely diffuse anything you would say, they're going to call you uneducated. Yeah, so, he, so, so Keller says they don't want to refute you logically. Right. They just want to socially ostracize you. Right. And make everyone else, that like, like the audience, that's one thing that social media does, create an audience that says, look at how implausible right. they are as a person. Right. 
because they believe this. So it's like social shame, yeah. which ignores any kind of like logic to the argument. That's my only concern. Right. And so with theistic evolution, it's like, I'd like to probably talk with people and say, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Right. If it's, if it's theistic evolution, which embraces evolution as a worldview, I think that that degradates the things that are foundational to what it means to be Christian. Yeah. And I also think like, you're just going to have a hard time with everything you read in Genesis. It's going to have a really difficult time. <laughs> or the Bible for that matter. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Bible for that matter. But, like, why would, if if theistic evolution were uh, true and complete, why would God feel the need to create a man? Like, wouldn't wouldn't that just work itself out? Right. Uh, so I think you're just going to run into a lot of issues, and maybe you could get there, maybe you could jump through some hoops, but you're, you're digging really deep into what I referred to earlier in the white spaces. Yeah. And, and I mean, and I think that sometimes if we're not careful, like our our desire to explain away certain parts of the Bible, it's ignoring like at the very center of the Christian faith, you have a resurrection. Right. Yeah. Or, or maybe you can go a little step like before that and say you have the incarnation. Yeah. Yeah. These are these are supernatural things. Like there's there's a scientific explanation for like the hypostatic union. Yeah. Which is God is 100 percent or Jesus is 100 percent God and 100 percent man and how those two natures are one. Like I just think. You have to acknowledge at some level there's a supernatural element yeah. right. to our faith. Right. Well, you know, and you guys mentioned uh, the Imago Dei, the image of God. And so basically to say that Adam and Eve would be figurative would, would kind of deny that because uh, essentially if you're looking at a, what we're talking about is a the- theistic evolution, you're looking at apes, monkeys, primates, primates, excuse me, uh, primates. Yes. Okay. Uh, got my words a little bit. So uh, evolving or adapting up until a certain point and where they reach like a checkpoint, like in a video game, where the image of God is then at that point locked into them as if God didn't, you know, do it from the very beginning. And so, you know, I agree with you. It's, 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 a, it's of utmost importance. And, and the reason is because the Imago Dei is not just some kind of figurative uh, concept. It is a real tenant of our intrinsic worth and value and who we were created to represent. Um, and so, you know, one of, one of our points that we cannot deny is that uh, the Imago Dei must be preserved in our worldview and our thoughts, uh, and it is paramount for, for the importance of being a Christian. Um, and, you know, really speaking of the Imago Dei, um, you talked about losing some of the, the, the core tenets if we decide to move on from that Imago Dei or do a, a theistic evolution. Like, let's talk about some of those things. Like, why is the Imago Dei outside of the first fundamental building block, which is that it is in the image of the very God of the universe, and he set the standard from the get-go. What are some of those things that really kind of play out in our lives um, as we live in the image of God? Well, I mean, Ty, Ty already hit on one, which is, Without the Imago Dei, we have a universe of meaninglessness. Hmm. That is a terrifying thought. Right. If we don't have the Imago Dei, then we have, then purpose, the very like fabric of purpose gets demolished. And you can kind of see this even in secularism, right? Which secularism is telling our children, um, you are not, you don't have purpose and then you live out of that purpose, but you have to create purpose by doing something. Yeah. And so you, you create your own purpose. That's more of an existentialism thought like you got to go out and and create your own purpose for life versus what christian theology has always held which is we already have purpose just by the very nature of being right and the problem with uh 
the problem with this idea that you have to go out and do something in order to have purpose is it takes the weakest of society yep and it it makes them subhuman yep and we've seen this throughout the history of the world and in particular in its in its worst case we've seen it in uh the 20th century mm -hmm. right so you know world war ii hitler's final solution is the idea of taking the weakest of society and just demolishing them right so that you can create a, a more uh, robust and, and, and healthy and strong race of people who can dominate. And the big idea is that, well, they don't have purpose anyway, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or they're deficient. And, you know, Christian theology is that human beings, although they can be affected by the fall and, and infected by sin, that they have value and dignity just because they're human. Yep. And, and if you could think there's so many things, well, for churches, like every mercy ministry is on that basis. Right. Um, right. Uh, abortion. I think the, the reason that abortion is so common is because we've said that once again, the weakest of society that don't have a voice to speak for themselves, yep. we can lay them on the altar of, you know, societal progress, if that's what you will. You know, I, we, I saw an article with a video or maybe it was on Twitter or something, but some gal from Hollywood standing up and saying the reason that I was successful in Hollywood is because I aborted mm -hmm. my child at 15. Yeah. And she's just cheering for it. All these people are cheering. Yeah, you are successful because you killed this child. And I think that, well, well, one thing, what we do in order to sear our conscience is we don't call it a child. We call it a clump of cells and all this kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. And the crazy part is there's no logic to that because now we're getting further and further along the uh, the progression of you know pregnancy. We're saying all the way up into nine months. Well, right. when, when is it a child now? You know, it's just, it's totally illogical. But I think at the very heart, it's it's we've diminished the Imago Dei. Right. You know, so, so you got abortion there. You have, I think the, just the very rule of law itself. Yeah. So, so for instance, why do we have laws against murder? Well, you could say, well, because it would go awry pretty quickly and become anarchy. But if you go all the way back to the very foundation, we say, well, because we believe human beings have dignity, worth, and value, yep. and therefore there should be an equitable response to you taking another life yep. or harming another person. Or, you know, why is it that, uh, harming a dog, which is awful and we ought not do because God's given us a stewardship over creation. But why is it different than harming a baby? Yeah. yeah. Well, because of the Imago Dei. And I think if you go back to all the government and authoritarian regimes throughout history, what you'll find is that's the first thing to go. If you could take away people's individual identity as image bearers of God that have value and dignity and worth, then you can treat them however you want in the name of human progress. Right. And you've seen some really awful things from the gulags in Russia to the concentration camps in Nazi Germany to Mao's communist China. You get right. some really awful things. And, and listen, that stuff's going on still. I mean, yeah. it's sad. Right. And, and that's the thing, like, it, um, it, it fits the agenda. That's really what it's about. Because if, it, if that agenda ever got turned back on them, you turn their worldview back to the person holding it, then no longer is it valid. It's, a, it's relative. It's subjective. Yeah, well, it's kind of like uh, everybody's truth is valid until my truth says that I can harm, punch you in the face. Right, exactly. You know, it's like, well, that's not right. Well, what, why do you get to decide what's right? And it's similarly with this. Right. It's a, it kind of goes back to the, uh, you know, a tenet of theistic evolution is that, um, is that the weak will die off and the strong will survive. Well, if that's the case, then we shouldn't be helping any poor people downtown we you should never visit someone in a hospital like right now with the coronavirus i mean we should not be helping at all we should just simply allow the virus to take its toll and human race will progress and think, grow think about just how opposite it is from jesus entering the world right 
he enters the world and he spends mo- most of his time. If you just think if we just took a graph and we said how how much time does Jesus spend around the least of these, and those who have, who would have been considered not helpful to the progress of human society, right. Jesus is mostly with those people. Right. He's with the sick. He's with the destitute. He's with the poor. He's with the impoverished. He's with the social outcasts, the lepers. Yep. This is who he spends time with. Yep. The very fabric of the gospel is that Jesus comes to the helpless. Yes. And 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 does what they can't do for themselves. So. I mean, the Imago Day is, it's foundational. It's why, yeah. it's really why we wanted to do the Blueprint series, because yes. there are many things that are happening right now, whether it's in the voting ballots uh, with politics, or whether it's just on your everyday interaction with, with your neighbor, right. that when the Imago Day begins to deteriorate, the very fabric of society starts to deteriorate, because if we can just treat one another like just common animals, which is ultimately what Darwinian theory is aiming at, right? then what keeps the the most powerful from doing whatever they want right you know i'm i'm taking an intro to philosophy class right now so so many of you may probably recognize this line of thinking if you've taken that class before but the first i'm i'm in an eight week term so the first week was last week and it, we have to read plato's five dialogues and, and socrates is talking at the at the courthouse um as he's waiting to be he's been indicted for uh what the crime is known as Corrupting the youth of Athens, mm-hmm. and uh, the discussion question was basically on the topic of the gods and things that are beauty, beautiful, and uh, and holy. And the 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 question of philosophy is: Are things that are beautiful and holy that way because uh, the gods say they they are, or the gods like them, or do the gods like them because they're beautiful and holy? Mm. And and really, in the second half of my essay that I had to do for my test, I. I compared it to the image of God and just saying, well, we can't really answer that question because the Greek gods, even in their own historical account, are not perfect. Mm-hmm. They're not all good or, or, or all powerful. You know, they have limits. They've done wrong things. You can look at the mythological accounts of Zeus doing immoral things. Right. Um, and you look at God, Yahweh, and Christ on earth, and the Holy Spirit, who have never sinned, never fallen short, they are the, the authors of life and have the ability to give intrinsic worth to other things mm-hmm. and call them holy. And so we view the image of God so beautifully and so carefully because that is from where all, all, all of our worth comes from. Yeah, I, it's funny. I can't steal this. I listened to it yesterday. It's from Ravi Zacharias. I just mm-hmm. thought it was a genius way of, of, uh, of framing this. But he said, if, you were to, if someone were to say about you, like, Brendan, he's a pure guy. This guy's a pure dude. Most likely what they what they mean is that there's an absence of something in your life, meaning you don't look at certain things on the Internet. You, right. you don't partake in certain things. You withhold and, and restrain from certain things in your life. And he said, he goes on to explain the difference in the person of Christ. And this is unique to Christianity because we believe that our God was he came to earth mm-hmm. and wrapped himself in human flesh. Yeah. That when you see Jesus, when you talk about Jesus' purity, it's not the absence of something. It's the presence of something that's nowhere else. Correct. Yeah. That only Christ held perfect purity. Mm-hmm. For, for all of us, and this is another thing that Ravi says, he says, you know, we have a desire for good and we have a desire for evil. Mm-hmm. And the best that we can say about ourselves is that we love the desire for good in ourselves and we hate the desire for evil in ourselves. But you can't deny that you have that desire for evil and that it's there. With Christ, you have what is nowhere else. 
in the universe, which is purity. It's the presence of something completely other that he invites us into. So to answer the question, you know, it's like whenever, whenever we look to the Christian faith, what we have is, well, for instance, you said you can't answer the question because we have Christ, which is the presence of perfection. So yes, he says it and it is sacred. And he is sacred, mm-hmm. and therefore he says it. Yes. Both become true in the person of Christ. Yeah. And then that's the, so to bring it back to the Imago Dei, that's the beauty of saying that when we're in Christ, we're born again. Yep. And he's making us like him. Yep. Like he's, he's putting something in our hearts. The, the Spirit's like the, it's what does Ephesians 1 say? It's the deposit, the guarantee of what is to come. Right. So he places in our hearts this new something, this purity that's going to fully bloom and blossom when we see him face to face. And so we basically this fractured image bearers that we are, are getting put back together again. Right. It's an amazing thought. Yeah. Well, I want to begin to land the plane here, but before I do, I just have to ask because I know everybody's wondering, (laughs) what about the fossils? What about the dinosaurs? (laughs) You know, like I alluded to it earlier, but it was... It was so funny watching my Old Testament professor like respond to these people because they because he would start to move on. He'd be like, "No, no, no! You didn't answer the question about dinosaurs. What about them?" And he would have to keep saying, "Like, listen, we're not going to be able to answer this today." But uh, you know, there's there's this will kind of tie back to old Earth and new Earth because uh, it depends on what you believe as far as dinosaurs. Now, some people say that uh, the word tanin in Genesis and throughout other books of the uh, the Old Testament it it can sometimes mean serpent. It can sometimes mean um, sea monster, but more often than not, it's translated dragon. And so they'll use this. And so you have like, you have like the behemoth in Job. Uh, and it says that its tail is the size of a cedar tree. Hmm. And, uh, and so you, you could take that as figurative or you could take that as literal, but some people would say like, Oh, well, that's like a, that's like a Tyrannosaurus Rex or Brachiosaurus. It's tail is like a cedar tree. Some people said it's an elephant, but clearly that's not the case. Um, so if you're a young earth, you would say that dinosaurs lived alongside man and the flood killed them. And, uh, that's in, in general, small view of it. If you're an old earth, in order to keep, uh, consistent, you would say that for the most part, dinosaurs lived prior to, uh, man, but still existed at some level. And when the flood came, it killed them. Yeah. Um, but uh, what is clear is that God did not explicitly talk about dinosaurs. Yeah. And so, so that's what makes this, this topic pretty tough because of it. But, you know, and some people who hold to a, a new earth or a younger theory, they would say that um, since God did create everything with age, with maturity, like he created Adam as a full-grown man, not as a baby to grow up. Uh, he created uh, trees that were likely tall and had rings. Uh, you know, God didn't just create tectonic plates that collided and then finally at some point became mountains, but he created mountains and the things in it and created the rivers and he, he's created everything with age. And because of that, some people, you're kind of like hyper young earth theorists will say that God also created the earth with, uh, bones in it and dinosaurs didn't actually exist. The only problem with that is that it's a bit deceiving. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's basically God tricking people to believe that something was there when it actually wasn't there. Right. And then the people with the older, their problem would be, okay, so you're saying that at some level there was 
dinosaurs that died before the fall. So death right. entered before the fall. Right. And, and so then there becomes this issue. Um, the, the response to that would be, well, yeah, because there, there, there was certain elements of death before the fall, including plants, because plants had to be eaten in order for human beings to survive. Correct. So, yeah, I agree with you. There's, I don't think you're going to solve the dinosaur dilemma. I think we could, with certainty, say that there are animals that are represented with those fossils that we just don't see. Right. And it's incredible, and it's awesome. And, like, studying it, I think, is great if you get to go to museums. You know, right. my, my, uh, my nephew, Caleb, loves loves dinosaurs, just yeah. loves studying them. And I think it's really, it's magnificent to think that God would create animals of this sort. Yeah. And, and, I, and listen, um, I, I would just quote, I think it's Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, he says, ultimately science and scripture will agree in the end. Yep. And where they don't currently agree, there's probably a misinterpretation on one end. Yep. So either we're, and this has been true of science before, right? So like there was a time where we thought that we were in an earth-centered universe. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, had to, Galileo had to come along and say, no, nah, it's, it's a sun-centered universe, which really Copernicus, I think, was the one who yeah. maybe first started it. But like we're a heliocentric universe. And so science has been wrong before. It's plausible that that could be the case. I will say, however, it seems like there's a lot of evidence that would say maybe we're misinterpreting. Maybe we don't really understand what the scriptures are saying. Or Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, the secret things belong to the Lord. And he has just right. chosen, as he does with many things, that we're on a need-to-know basis. Yeah. And he's like, listen, you don't need to know. Yeah. For us. And maybe our ancestors knew. Right. And we don't. But I think that I agree with Aquinas to say science and scripture will agree in the end. Yes. There's probably an error on our interpretation on one end. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I tell it to my students all the time whenever we teach that they don't need to be afraid of science because so many of them are. Like, what if we discover something that debunks my entire uh, philosophy of belief? It'll happen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it, you see it happen. Uh, especially with some of these uh, deconversion stories that you're yep. you're seeing on YouTube of uh, you know very famous YouTubers that kids look up to and um, and so you you start to see it that you know science reveals things and but at the end of the day if we believe that God is real so like I guess tracking back to that um, Stephen Hawking I, I remember I remember watching this whenever I was active duty in the Coast Guard I was on, I was on a boat and he was it was a documentary that he was talking about the existence of God or the non-existence of God. And he opened up with saying that he didn't feel like there were, there was room for God within the laws of nature. And I know what he was doing. Uh, he was using the laws of nature as sovereign. Yeah. And there's a fracture in his framework. So you, he's not going to consider God because he already has a sovereign framework in the laws of nature. So we can't fit God in there. Nature is his God. Right, exactly. But it doesn't assume that God created those laws of nature. It doesn't assume that God created things like gravity. Uh, it doesn't assume anything like uh, like that. So whenever we have to remember that we have a we have a sovereign God that sits above everything and he's the one that creates, he's the one that designs, and when something gets revealed, it should not scare you. In fact, it should further concrete your faith it should remind you of a good god who took all of these details into consideration whenever he was creating and i would say like there if we read the bible in its entirety there is a the the theme is that human beings rebel against the authority of god Mm -hmm. and therefore would like it uh well the original sin right is this idea that we would like to sit on the throne of god alone and have him be gone right so the idea that there's going to be scientific advances that ultimately uh, shove God off of his throne should not shock you. Right. 
uh, it, you should you should probably spend time. We should teach our children to spend time asking ourselves: Is the aim to get to truth, or is the aim to dethrone God? Right. Hmm. Because if the aim is to get to truth, then we want to be on we want to be on board with that. Yeah. If the aim is to dethrone God, and then therefore we would do anything that we can to even like mask or manipulate truth to yeah. that end. Well, then we have to see it for what it is, and I think that's what's happening culturally with like the shame. Yeah. Uh, the the plausibility structures that we want to set up. It's right. like it's it's totally implausible for you to be an intellectual and believe in the God of the Bible because why? Well, because I said so. Right. And therefore, you don't want to have an argument. You don't want to have a discussion. You don't want to have a debate on the logic of it. You want to have a debate on the basis of emotion, emotional shaming arguments. Right. Like what a what a fool you are. And I think the, the and this is true, right? The the older that you get, the less effective that is. Yeah. Um. At least that's in my experience. Maybe that's not true all the way across the board. But in my experience, the older that I get, the less effective shaming is. Yeah. But I will say, and, and you guys, if you put yourself back in like your teenage years, there's, n- there's very few things more effective than shame right. when you're a teenager. Right. Because it really doesn't matter as much what's true as it matters am I accepted. Right. And right. so like equipping our, our children um, really starts on those two fronts. It's not just giving them answers to these questions. It's also giving them antidotes to shame, yeah. namely Jesus mm. and the gospel, yeah. to say that, listen, the, the world is going to be full of uh, shaming tactics. Yeah. And here's how you can run back to Jesus who takes away your shame, even, even when it's well-placed or misplaced. Yeah. And it, it kind of goes back to, <clears throat> like as a father, um, I, I want to teach my son and daughter to, uh, to learn, not just to gain facts. Uh, but I want them to learn to problem solve, so that way when they encounter hiccups, they're not surprised by it, but they they know that they're setting on a trajectory of figuring this out. Mm-hmm. And you know, as you alluded to earlier, we're never going to figure this whole thing out. I think if, if you try to assume that you have, then you remove the awe and wonder that your soul longs for in God. Yeah. If you, if you feel like you've just nailed this thing theologically. Um, then I think you it puts you in a in a tough spot and it puts you in a place of pride that you that you have discovered the depths of God and not mm-hmm. and you haven't left room for all. Yeah, it's funny. That's like that's in my notes as we were preparing for this. My my last thing that I put was these discussions should inspire all mm-hmm. and create confidence in Christ. Yeah. Uh, And it creates confidence in Christ in two ways. When science proves the things of the Bible, it creates confidence in the narrative. When when science brings up a bunch more questions, it should make us think, speak to God that we have Jesus and we still have an anchor for the soul and that science isn't our foundation. Right. And then uh, the other note that I put down here is the moment that these discussions inspire ought between you and your brother. Right. Or create boasting in yourself. Right. They are both unhelpful and unwelcome. Yes. I mean, we need to be, rem- I mean, David in the Psalms said, how unsearchable are your ways? Hmm. I mean, why would we assume that we're just going to get to this point where we have everything, every ch- every box checked, every every T crossed, every I dotted? Mm-hmm. You're just never going to get there. And, uh, and I think that's okay. But like you said, it is a good thing and a godly thing to pursue this knowledge. I mean, it's like, if I stopped pursuing my wife and getting to know her, you know, they say, you know, sociologists say that you're uh, the person that you marry changes every 10 years. Yeah. And, and if that's true, then I must continually search 
to know my wife at a deeper level. I must, um, you know, I must tinker with our relationship, fix things, work things around to make sure that we're growing. Uh, but if I just got married to her and stopped pursuing, then that's not actually love. Yeah. Uh, so to love God, and if you want to create in some ways more awe in your soul and heart, you should pursue these things. Yeah, and it's not that God's changing like we're ch- like we're changing. God's unchangeable, but but the factor is the 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 knowability of God, right? And our uh, like this incomplete knowledge that we have. It's yeah. kind of like on, on Sunday we we're talking about Peter. Did he want to experience the supernatural walking on water for the sake of it? Right. Which would be like knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? Knowledge that puffs up. Right. Or Peter wanted to walk on the water to be near to Jesus. Right. Because he wanted to he wanted to be close to Christ, wanted to know him in this way. Right. And that's how we ought to seek knowledge. Knowledge that like builds up, it builds each other up, which I hope this conversation has done. Yeah. But it also it it brings us nearer to knowing God in that intimate way that he intends for us. Yeah. Right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this. We got a lot of profcasts on deck for you guys. Uh, this was Genesis Mysteries Part One, and so we have Part Two coming up, where we're going to talk about all the things post-creation. Really, not all the things, but a few of the things post-creation, things like the Tower of Babel, stuff like that. All the mysteries that we all have questions about, and we also uh, talked a lot about the Imago Day today. And uh, very soon, we're going to have a profcast on the Nashville Statement, which most of you should know. But if you haven't heard, we have adopted the Nashville Statement as a doctrinal statement for our church, a doctrinal position, um, and really kind of defining where we stand um, as a response to the culture and how it's moving today. We wanted to hold to some biblical truths or truths that we believe are biblical. And so um, you can you can take a look at that. Um, and then we have things like uh, we have Satan, sin, and lies coming up. So we're going to talk about the fall um, and, and talk about a few more things. And like we said, our hope is that we can get these out once a week for you guys. Um, just another plug, uh, we do have every Wednesday night during our COVID internments. Uh, I probably shouldn't say internment. That has a lot of deep history for my ancestors. But uh, during our quarantine, probably a better word there, uh, we try to have these once a week. And we have our Wednesday night worship live uh, live videos. You can tune into Facebook for that. Um, it's just where we're going to spend a few minutes together in song and prayer. And, and we're going to start having a small devotion um, and I, I mean small. It's not uh, that's not a deceptive small right there. <laughs> um, and then every Sunday um, we are putting our gatherings online at 10 a.m. And so you can tune into that. And so uh, I'll leave you with our benediction. I keep wanting to say the the quote from the Truman Show, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but uh, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Stay now in your social circles and share the love of God that's been shown to you. Love God, love people, and we'll catch you next week.